you know, making our way through the pandemic has been uh, interesting to say the least, but it hasn't stopped our forward momentum. Like that's the one thing that we never let it do is stop what our vision was as to where we wanted to go. Those were the words of Christian Nimi, the owner of two restaurants in Columbia, South Carolina, Bourbon and the Black Rooster. Christian started in the local restaurant scene when he joined Bill Dukes at the Blue Marlin in the Vista. In 1995, he entered the restaurant business as an owner when he and a few friends from the Blue Marlin purchased Mr. Friendly's in Five Points. His journey has taken him from Minnesota to Charleston, South Carolina, back to Minnesota and to Columbia, South Carolina. He has traveled the world, both in his time in the military and independently. The Who's on the Move podcast highlighting entrepreneurs making an impact on our communities is made possible with the support of First Community Bank. First Community Bank knows local businesses, professionals, and entrepreneurs form the backbone of our communities. And for more than 25 years, they have served those customers in the Midlands, Upstate, and Aiken regions of South Carolina, as well as in Augusta, Georgia. First Community Bank, member FDIC. This series is made possible also with the support of MP Strategy, a strategic communications firm comprised of former journalists, political insiders, and public relations executives. Learn more at npstrategy.com. And Nephron Pharmaceuticals, a South Carolina-based company, Nephron develops and produces safe, affordable, generic inhalation solutions and suspension products. We also appreciate the support of the we also appreciate the support of the City of Columbia's Office of Business Opportunities, an organization that is committed to supporting initiatives that benefit small, minority, veteran, and women-owned businesses located in or that want to do business with the City of Columbia. And the Riley Institute at Furman University. The Richard W. Riley Institute advances social and economic progress in South Carolina and beyond by building leadership for a diverse society. Learn more at Furman.edu forward slash Riley. Christian, tell us about your journey to entrepreneurship. Oh man, it's my journey to entrepreneurship started probably when I was five or six. Um, and I think it was the first time that I ever picked up a broom at my grandfather's print shop and pushed it and he gave me money for it. And I was like, oh, okay. And then from that moment on, it was Kool-Aid stands, um, selling minnows and leeches and worms to the fishermen. Um, yeah, I mean, any, anything to hustle a buck and continued even when I was in the army. I mean, I remember selling sprout sandwiches at a Grateful Dead concert and I can't stand the Grateful Dead, but it was a good crowd to sell sandwiches to. <laughs> so I made a cooler full of sandwiches and Sold it to a bunch of deadheads. Although they wanted to just trade me drugs for them, but. Tell us about where you were from and maybe about some of your early food influences. So I was born and raised in Chisholm, Minnesota, which is a small mining town. It's uh, located on the Iron Range. It's a strip of low-grade iron ore that a bunch of towns popped up along and it's where they make taconite pellets, which then go to the steel mills to be turned into steel into the smelting uh, facilities. So it was a real kind of blue collar town uh, with a lot of different ethnicities because the mines needed people just, they needed warm bodies. 
so my town was filled with Italians, a lot of Slavic people, um, a lot of Scandinavians. So the food influences in our family, you know, ranged everything from, you know, my great grandmother on my dad's side was, you know, Finnish. So all the Finnish dishes. Then my grandmother was Slovenian, so the Slavic dishes. Other grandmother was uh, Ukrainian, so all that. And then you know, then they'd just like any small town, you know, the, everybody swapped recipes. So you know, we we had a lot of. Uh, I let's put it this way: to end up in the food business is kind of apropos, since. I grew up in a family that the food was really good. I mean, nobody made a point of it. Nobody was like, oh, you know, like your grandma is such a good cook or your mom's such a good cook. I mean, we all knew that, but it was never, they were just naturally good cooks. And so the food was fantastic. So, and when I, when I left there, I went into the army. I went into military intelligence and kind of got to travel around the world. But, you know, from day one, not day one, I'll say Repo Depot sucked. But the food, once I got to even basic training at Fort Leonard, was, was excellent. Like, I was shocked how good the food was. And then when I got to permanent party at Fort Bragg, the mess hall there was, I mean, it, I'd put it up against most restaurants, uh, the quality. So all throughout my Army career, I, I had fantastic food. And so when I got out and went to the College Charleston, I remember after, like, the first week of just partying and having a good time with my roommates and everything, kind of coming home one day and walking into the apartment and going, okay, I'm 22 years old. I've never cooked a meal in my life, you know, a true meal. I better learn how to cook because I can't afford to go out every night. And so I drove my VW Bug down to Barnes & Noble. I found a cookbook sat in my car, picked a couple of recipes, walked into the food line next door, bought the ingredients, went home, cooked, and thought, I'm pretty good at this too. And once I realized that the GI Bill didn't pay for anything, I had to get a job, and I got a job immediately at a restaurant in Charleston called Ferrante's and as a waiter, because I knew that you didn't make any money in the back of the house. So I just, yeah, did that. Christian, talk about how you landed in Columbia, South Carolina, and your first forays into the local restaurant scene. The whole time I was in college, I, I worked in restaurants because the money was so good. I mean, as a waiter, you know, you were making upwards of anywhere from $25, $30 an hour. And this is, you know, late 80s, early 90s. Uh, and I never thought it was going to be a career. And at the same time, I'm cooking at home all the time and getting more, becoming more and more of a, for lack of better words, home chef. Not just a home cook, but like literally, you know, really trying and, you know, kind of spreading my wings and trying different things and, and doing my own creations and everything. And, you know, transferred from College Charleston up to the University of Minnesota and, and was working on a degree in historic preservation of architecture, still working in restaurants, still asking the chef at the restaurant way too many questions and finally one day he just looked at me and goes you know you need to go to culinary school and I thought about it for a moment I laughed at it at first I thought about it for a moment when I left work and I thought you know I still have money in the GI Bill because I had since uh, been finally awarded a, a disability on my right knee from jumping out of airplanes and so the rest of my 
schooling was taken care of, but I still had this little small chunk of money in my GI Bill. So I was like, well, I'll go to culinary school also. So my senior year at the university, I also, I kind of went back and forth. I went to the St. Paul College, then I'd go to the university in the afternoon. Still not ever thinking I'd be in the restaurant business until I moved to Columbia. And basically what happened very quickly was I got a job at Garibaldi's bartending. I got a call one night asking if I wanted to manage a restaurant. I said, sure, I may as well. I wasn't, I didn't, it was a recession. Didn't, there was nobody in the architecture world that was looking for somebody that specialized in historic preservation, especially in Columbia. So I took the job and it turned out to be at Longhorn in the Vista, which was owned by Bill Dukes. And shortly thereafter, he came to me and said, you know, hey, I want you to see this restaurant we're doing in Charlotte called Blue Marlin. What do you think about it? And I said, I think it's got legs. I think you could do a lot with this business. And he goes, well, good, because you're gonna be the opening manager of the Blue Marlin in the Vista across the street. So I kind of got a crash course on how to open a restaurant. So after about six months there, myself, the manager that was uh, my floor manager and my assistant kitchen manager, we all left and opened Mr. Friendly's. And that was in March of 95. And that was one of those situations where literally we bought it on a Wednesday and we reopened the next day on a Thursday with a completely new menu and all of our product in there. And, you know, that kind of, that set the hook. You know, I, I was chasing the lure for a while and I, I had it in my mouth, but, but opening the restaurant was, was really setting the hook, even though I knew it was apparent early on that it was, you know, everybody says it's a tough business, but you have no idea how tough it is when you're starting out. So, I mean, profit levels are, profit margins are, are minuscule in this business. Um, the HR issues are, are never ending uh, because you're always dealing with young people coming and going from the industry. Uh, the vagaries of the market, you know, you just, I remember going into the first, we're going into that first September, October, and somebody said, oh, you're gonna hate it when the, the fair starts. And I was like, the fair doesn't affect us. That's not our clientele. And oh my God, you could have thrown a box of rocks in the restaurant on any given night of the fair and we didn't hit a single person because it, we were empty. And I was like, oh. So, but I mean, you know, once that hook is set and you're, you're doing it all for yourself and you're learning every day, like I learned right away all the stuff that I didn't know uh, when I opened the Blue Marlin for Bill, I realized how many things he did and his people did behind the scenes that allowed me to just simply run the restaurant. So I learned about insurance and payroll taxes and, you know, all those things. You know, the learning curve is steep. So, you know, I always tell, you know, my employees who are friends and that come to me and say, I would really like to open a restaurant. I'm like, you need to work somewhere where they allow you to see everything and then you'll understand just how difficult this business is so here's a question that i have been asking entrepreneurs would you recommend entrepreneurship to someone you love and if the restaurant business is so hard would you recommend starting your own restaurant business boy that you know it really depends on the person and what point they are in life and what kind of support system they have around them i was young I was, well, I was married, but, you know, sh she was in college. 
we were living on very little. We could continue to live on very little. Uh, you know, I had nothing to lose at that point. I was, I think when I opened Mr. Friendly's, I was maybe 27 or 28. So it was a good time in life. I wasn't risking anything. The buy-in for Mr. Friendly's was so cheap that it made it possible. And I knew, I knew myself that there was no way I would allow it to fail. And so I ended up, I ended up destroying that marriage because I worked nonstop. I mean, I was at the restaurant at 7 a.m. and I didn't leave until we mopped the floor at night and that could be anywhere from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. You know, she was asleep when I got home. She was asleep when I left. You know, the day she left, I literally looked at her and said, I, I can't believe you stayed this long, you know? Um, so it's, it really depends on where you are in life. Entrepreneurship is a, is a minefield to be traversed with you know, as much caution as you would expect a minefield to be. It's the, you know, the, the highs are, well, the highs sometimes are just the most mundane things that anyone else in life would take for granted. But the lows are devastating. The lows are, you know, how am I gonna make payroll? You know, where's that money gonna come from? You know, especially in the rest, like I would, I don't recommend it in the restaurant business because the, the cost to buy in is so high now. now you can do it. There's, there's ways to do it. Um, one, of, uh, one of our employees opened, uh, our former employees opened Rambo's Fat Cat Biscuits, you know, and he's doing great. And it was done on a shoestring. You know, he didn't have to borrow a ton of money. And so it's, it's, it's just you have, to, you have to temper your expectations. And, and, and you have to understand that you're going to be building something from nothing and that doesn't happen overnight. You know, now, we've, now I have the reputation in town after doing this for 20 plus years where I can open a restaurant and, and it's you know, relatively full the first night because people are waiting for what's, what's he going to do next. And that's, a, that's, that's something I never take for granted. And, and you know, if anything, that's, I may not have put a lot of money in the bank over the years because this is such a a slim margin business, but it's, if there's one thing I said, I think I've built a reputation and, and integrity in this business that I, you could, I couldn't trade for, for cash. So I don't know. Entrepreneurship is a, it's a, yeah. You don't recommend it to everybody. Let's put it that way. Like not everybody's got it. You know, there are some people out there that you know they could hustle anything. You could give them a, you give them a box of candles, and you know, two years from now you'll see them running a huge, their own huge company because they took that and parlayed it into something, and then into something, and then into something because they never stopped hustling. But you can't do it as a side. It, it can't. You can't go in part ways. It has to be a hundred and you know the old hundred and ten percent or or nothing. What is your vision for the restaurants? My vision for our, my restaurants has always been very simple. Super high quality food and imaginative dishes kind of couched in comfort food in a way, uh, accessibility to everybody, and 
the kind of place where you can go in wearing shorts and a t-shirt or you can go in wearing a tuxedo and you know the food's going to be great and the atmosphere is going to be casual not stuffy not pretentious you won't feel out of place wearing either thing you're just there to have great food and have a good time great drinks and everything i mean we started that with mr friendly's and that's basically been the underlying theme to every restaurant that I've opened is that it's you're gonna get a great culinary experience but you don't have to get dressed up for it and you know we're not gonna be snooty about our service and it's not gonna be it's you're just gonna feel comfortable and I think as long as you go into it knowing what it is you want in your restaurant or in your business how what kind of what kind of feel you want to have to it and, and stay true to that. I couldn't do anything else. To be honest with you, there's just nothing else I could do because it, just, it doesn't reflect me. That reflects me. That's what kind of place I wanted to eat at and that, therefore that was the kind of place that, those are the kind of places that I always present. It just is like I would never open something that I wouldn't feel comfortable going into just, just like this, shorts and a t-shirt. So let's talk about what's new and exciting at your business in 2021. So 2021 has been kind of exciting in a way, uh, or I should say end of 2020 and 2021 has been exciting and exhilarating and yet just soul deadening in, in a lot of ways. Just, you know, making our way through the pandemic has been uh, interesting to say the least, but it hasn't stopped our forward momentum. Like that's the one thing that we never let it do is stop what our vision was as to where we wanted to go. So we, we recently opened this space here at uh, Bourbon. Uh, Terry at Blue Flower decided to focus on her business up in Irmo and decided to pull out of uh, the Blue Flower bakery space. And so First Citizens came to us and said, let's, you know, you can have it now, which we'd, we'd always wanted it since day one. So we took it over and transformed it into basically the bourbon lounge. So this is a, all the same cocktails, drinks, and everything else, but with a uh, more of a, a small plate menu instead of the full kitchen because this side only has a small kitchen. So we still do the 3B, you know, the burger, beer, and bourbon special at happy hour. Uh, but then in addition to that, we do a bunch of small plates that, can, that that kitchen can handle. And what's that, what that's done for us is it's alleviated that huge weight that we have. So if you were coming for dinner at Bourbon, you would have to wait because the restaurant would be filled with people who were just there for cocktails, some there were for dinner, some were there for you know, cocktails and a light bite. So now we've got a space for you know, cocktails and a light bite or just cocktails. So it alleviates kind of the, that stress on the restaurant. It also gives people a place to wait if they are waiting for dinner. So we don't go on the huge waits like we did before. I mean, it, I don't, look, it's, it's great as a business owner to have your restaurant on a, on a two hour wait, that's great. But on the other hand, it sucks because you, you, you don't want that for your clientele. You don't want your, you don't want your clients having to wait that long to come in. So you know, anything we can do to kind of make that easier on them and give them a better experience that, that's better. So being able to expand and basically double our space and then add also the courtyard outside, which more than quadruples our space when you think about it, has been a huge uh, boom to the, 
to the restaurant. Um, Black Rooster continues to 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 move forward in, in its uh, progression in life. You know, we we you know every restaurant kind of has that. You know, you stumble out of the blocks, and everybody wants to come and try you out and everything. And then you know everybody judges you based on their first experiences and everything. And um, but you know every restaurant evolves, and so you know we've have a new chef there, and so the menus evolved a little bit differently. Um, and but I mean it's still I think by far the best outdoor dining experience on the rooftop and the patio. You know just the just sitting on that outdoor patio, looking out over the river is you know i think that's the best view then when you get up onto the rooftop you get more of an overall view of the city and everything but not any given evening when the sun is setting and reflecting off downtown columbia i don't you, you just can't get a better spot so and then you know with ftt productions you know we've got the the great american whiskey fair coming up in october it's sold out already we've got uh bubble Q coming up after that at city roots you know, this past spring, the Rosé Festival was a sellout. So those events continue to move forward and we continue to grow them in, in fun and, and exciting ways. So, and then we started at Honey River Catering in order to give both restaurants and the farm, you know, the farm to table thing, uh, an avenue to take our, to get our food to people who wanted, you know, who want, if you want a bourbon, lunch set up at your you know your business you know we can cater that out of honey river catering if you want uh you know a black rooster experience in your home you know for eight people we can you know send a shot you know we can cater that there we also have an apartment above black rooster where we can do private dinners for up to 10 people you know send a chef up there and have a completely private experience which is what we did during the pandemic a lot you know you could, we could find eight to 10 people who all tested negative and were friends with each other. They'd, they'd book the place for a dinner out. And you know, when, when the restaurant itself was shut down, that was really kind of the only thing we were able to do. There has been a lot of talk about challenges in the restaurant business in the COVID era, including talk about labor shortages. What has your experience been? I'm not gonna say that it's been much ado about nothing in the press. But you know, I got called every day. It seemed to be the only thing that the new, that the newspapers and TV stations wanted to talk about was the, you know, the lack of of workers in the food and beverage industry and how hard it was, and we didn't really experience that. And and I think we're in a unique position in that we have been around for a long time, and I think we are a great. We have always, uh, we've always developed a good working. You know, basically, like I don't want to open up restaurants that I wouldn't eat at. I also didn't never wanted to open restaurants that I wouldn't want to work at. So you know, we're not we're not heavily we're not heavily corporate. We don't have a lot of rules and regulations. We don't have, um, you know, we let people be themselves. We don't, you know, you can have every part of your face pierced and tattooed. I don't care as long as you're competent at your job and you have a good personality and are friendly. Bring it on. You know, we. We are a little bit different than a lot of restaurants uh, in that, you know, opening up from the, at the end of the pandemic, we were able to finally switch over to a, a, a kind of a tip pooling pay structure, which allowed us to pay everybody at least seven twenty-five an hour and up based on their, you know, their experience and everything. 
and then uh, my partner Eric came up with an algorithm you know that we've we're constantly tweaking to figure out how to split the tips among the front of the house and back of the house in, in a you know equitable equitable way and what it's ended up doing is basically everybody makes more money uh, and more consistently so you don't have so as if you're a server you don't have the vagaries of a slow night and a busy night it, it evens out to a really good great you know per hour rate and the kitchen uh, makes more than they did before and based on business like on a busy weekend like graduation weekend or something like that everybody saw kind of how that works in that you know that whole you know a rising boat you know rising tide floats you know all boats or whatever I mean everybody saw their paychecks go up and they're like oh so when we're really busy you know every it's fantastic so it's what it's done is it's enabled us to to start to offer some, you know, some benefits like a 401k, and you know, we're looking down the road at doing, you know, healthcare paybacks and things like that. So, it's opened up our ability to treat our staff even better on a monetary and benefit sort of way than we were able to before. So, we haven't had difficulty getting or retaining people, and. So I don't want to sound like that. That's a that. I don't want it to sound like that would be a, f a fix for every sort of restaurant. That that really kind of only works on a place that does high numbers. You know, if you're a smaller place that's doing low volume and your your overall sales numbers are aren't that high, that doesn't necessarily work the same way. Um, so. I'm definitely not saying that every restaurant should adopt this. I'm saying for a restaurant like us, it works really well and has been, it's also been a revelation in that it has brought the front of the house and the back of the house together. Whereas I'm not going to say that we ever had, we've never kind of let it fester that, to where it's like us versus them in our restaurants. Because I think as from being a chef and, and an owner and, and being able to kind of seamlessly go from the front to the back constantly, I think we've, we've done a pretty good job of keeping that from ever happening. But by doing the, the tip pooling, it's definitely brought them closer together. So now if, if the front of the house has a, di has a problem, back of the house, the kitchen is ready to, is much more eager to help take care of that problem because they know that the tip might rely on that so they're like let's get, let's you know if you know if something if your if your steak was overcooked you're not gonna have to wait for us to cook a whole nother one literally what we're gonna do is we're gonna pull the, the one that's the closest off the grill and just make somebody else wait a couple more minutes while we put another one on for them so just before it was you, you may have run into situations where there was a little more of a us versus them regardless so that's definitely been another aspect that's been a, really a, a po on the positive side for us. What are some of your other passions outside of work? I mean, you know, the thing is outside of, outside of work, which I mean, work is, I don't consider it work. What I do is who I am and therefore I don't ever, there are very few days that I come to work where I, it, I feel like it's work. Um, but so outside of that, my, I would say my other hobbies in addition to being a restaurateur is, 
you know, I love to travel. I love to travel the world, especially. I love to be in different places. One of my goals when I first opened Mr. Friendly's, uh, I found a notebook about five, six years ago, and I had written down my goals. And one of my goals that I had put down, one of the first ones was to live in a different country for at least four weeks of every year. And I was never able to do that. Now we traveled a lot. I mean, I've traveled to many places and maybe over the course of you know, a year I'd spend four weeks traveling, but I never lived anywhere. And so five or six years ago, I was able to go and live in Spain, in Valencia for an entire month. And then the year after that, I went and lived in France for a month in Paris and then spent time taking some side trips. So that's really important to me. Playing hockey has been super important the entire time. I've pretty much I've been here. Not, I don't think I discovered that we had a hockey rink until maybe 2001 or something. But once I did, I played in every possible league that I could, and and I continue to to this day. And it's you know Bourbon just won the championship last night, and you know that just keeps me going. If I, as long as my body doesn't break down, I'm going to do it until they have to drag me off the ice. And um, yeah, and then my little, you know, my little family, you know, being able to go home at night. I mean, my, my girlfriend's got two kids. I'm never, that's something new in my life that I've never experienced. And I'm really enjoying that. And, you know, I, mean, I don't know if I'm like dad material, but I think I've learned enough in life to, to pass some, some good traits and, and information down the line to, and they're great kids. So, and, um, and it's fun watching. She's got her own business now. She's a financial advisor. So she's building her business and it's fun to watch that process, you know, and, you know, letting her know, just constantly reassuring her that, yeah, first years suck. You know, I remember, I remember Mr. Friendly's in the first years when we weren't able to take paychecks and there were three of us and that, that place did not make enough money to pay three of us. So we were all just barely scraping by for, you know, for a long time. So, yeah. So, I mean, yeah, being an entrepreneur, I guess is part of my DNA. Uh, being a world traveler was, you know, introduced to me when I was in the military and I'll never let that go. And being a hockey player started the first day I put skates on when I was, I don't know, three or four. And that will never end. Same with motorcycles. I'll probably have a motorcycle till the day I die. Although I hope that's not how I die. But with everybody on their phones these days, I don't know. Never had more close calls than I have in the last few years. So, but yeah, that's, um, yeah, I'm just, I'm just looking forward to the pandemic kind of ending so we can get back to traveling. That's my biggest thing.